The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Scorebox. In the headlines this hour, U.S. stocks end higher, but global growth fears linger while Chinese shares outperform in Asia, despite the mainland posting the worst fall in industrial profits since late 2011. ECB executive board member Eve Mersch tells CNBC exclusively he is concerned about external risks and that while Europe should remain committed to multilateralism, it cannot fall behind rivals like the U.S. and China. If the whole world is playing rugby, we cannot continue to play football. And that makes it uh, one reason why we have to reflect uh, a little bit uh, where are our bottom lines uh, for certain of our values. Uh, British MPs getting ready to vote again, this time on their preferred Brexit option. Amid reports, the Prime Minister, yes, she is just about still Prime Minister, Theresa May, could set a resignation date in one final effort to uh, push through her deal. German Finance Minister Olaf Scholz denies the government is pressuring Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank to merge, saying the banks are in the driving seat, not Berlin. those headlines have got me thinking existential thoughts about uh, what I'm going to say now. And I guess the whole point of headlines is that they are headlines. And so when we talk about concern over the banks in Europe, with uh, those comments there from Scholz as well, the concerns that Yves Mersch got about multilateralism, Brexit thrown into there, and Jeff's first headline about global markets, concerns about global growth. That's kind of what I'm going to say now, because there's not a lot more to the story in terms of yesterday's session. We had a rebound uh, from the drubbing we had in the previous session on these markets, but they abated a little bit later on as well. Uh, Gentlemen and ladies in fixed income world. I noticed you saw a little bit of a a less of a push forward on the bonds, although I noticed that the three month to the 10 year is still inverted. And there's a huge amount of conversation. Everybody's chipping in about whether it means recession, whether it's not a sign of recession. In fact, I saw, I think it was Patrick Armstrong was right. Actually, it's a great sign that at some stage it will steepen. I thought that was entirely logical. Uh, And then there's other comments about when, when does a recession happen after an inversion of the year? Well, you could wait a long time because in the last seven, I think, you could wait as long as 20 months for the recession to come through. How do you trade that? You think there's going to be a recession, but you can wait 20 months. Does that mean you make hay and party now on the upside and then look to whip out your position at some stage in the next 20 months? Probably is the answer. Uh, 15 months is the average, by the way, after the first inversion uh, to the first recession actually coming through. Should we have a look at some of the other markets while I'm wittering on here? Yields, here we go. This is what I'm saying. So we saw a little bit of a baiting on the performance of bonds net-net. But as you can see, I mean, the 10-year, 2.41. What did it peak at last year? Karen knows. It's 3.25, something like that as well. So we've come back a long, long way on that. And you only get 287 for your 30-year as well. Does that mean, by the way, you mortgage brokers out there in the United States, that you're offering massively cheaper terms on 30-year fixed-term mortgages? 
I wonder. I wonder if they've come off as aggressively. Certainly here in the United Kingdom, when the rates go down, you don't see the mortgage rate changing quite as quickly as it does when it goes the other way. Anyway, 287. Are you getting 3%, 3.3 on your mortgage rate 30 year? I might have a little look at that in a minute. Uh, let's have a look at the oil price. This is interesting as well. Do you remember the headlines? That was yeah, about three minutes ago. Uh, global growth concerns, concerns about trade, concerns about Brexit. What's the oil price doing? It's moving in the completely the opposite direction. Uh, look, we're trading 24% up so far this year. That's an extraordinary move, isn't it? Because three months is just about this year now, by the way. Uh, we've got a couple of days left to equate those two. 68 bucks for Brent. I can tell you two things about this. One, uh, back in 2011, when there were alarm bells on a whole host of other assets, it took a little bit longer for Brent to come off than other assets as well. So it has got form, this commodity. Two, uh, take a look at the dollar as well. If you've got a weak dollar, of course, these will be moving in an inverse uh, move as well. Uh, and, and, and just a couple of other things as well, I guess. A lot of it's about the technicals, the momentum and the speculators pushing this one higher. Third point I was going to raise, well, it's now become the fourth because I've filled with a third in the meantime, uh, was the fact that you're going to start seeing tweets again above $70, all right? You know that. So just have a look. We're quite near that level where the president gets quite hyperactive on uh, OPEC and what they need to do. Let's have a look at the Asian indices. We are down on the Nikkei, uh, 89 points. We are uh, respectfully higher on the Hang Seng, uh, 0.471% higher, and Shenzhen's doing zip. Opening calls for the fabulous European markets. They are 29 points higher on the Zetra DAX, uh, and the FTSE MIPS up 68 points. Karen, isn't it amazing? Every Wednesday, we say, Jeff, welcome back from Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> we seem to be doing up. that a lot recently. How it's are you? It's becoming up? a little bit of a trend. <laughs> yes, it? every Wednesday yes. we say, how was Moscow? Yeah, well, you could set your watch by it almost. Uh, I'll be heading off on Sunday, coming back yes, on Tuesday yes, morning. Yes. Lovely, well, looking forward to it. have the full report yet, only a brief summary. So surely you have to go back for the full report. Oh, thank you very much, Karen. Thank you very much. Friend I think indeed. someone else needs to get her Russian visa. I think somebody else needs a Russian visa. <laughs> you would love, uh, love standing it. by the Moskva uh, oh, in the middle yeah. of Winter. Oh, no, no, it's hang on. It's wonderful. getting a bit warmer now, though. <laughs> uh, ECB board member Eve Mersch has told CNBC in an exclusive interview the central bank still has room for manoeuvre in the face of global headwinds and weak data from the Eurozone. Mersch's remarks come ahead of Mario Draghi's speech before the ECB watchers today. That's the name of the event. His last address at the annual conference before his term as president ends later this year. Annetta joins us from Frankfurt. And Annetta, with the focus very much now on slowing growth data coming in from all around the world, um, to what extent do you think we will hear the ECB president address this head on? Well, I guess he will repeat his dovish message we got from him uh, at the last governing council meeting or the press conference, where he surprisingly went ahead of the curve. At least that is what commentators made out of that surprising announcement of a new round of Teltros, also the dovish message about the economic outlook. So the interesting part is uh, how the Teltros will be actually, um, or the terms of the Teltros we don't know yet, and also what my thinks whether the economy uh, has actually worsened uh, since he last appeared during the press conference. I guess this mix will be most interesting during the course of this uh, this uh, conference today, the ECB Watchers Conference. But yesterday I caught up with Yves Mersch exclusively at the ECB's headquarters here in Frankfurt. And I also asked him whether there is at least a thinking of changing the deposit rate, because clearly the deposit rate 
rate, it's a very big burden on the banks in the Eurozone, given their low profitability, that could perhaps also help the economy. So take a listen of what he said when I asked him about the deposit rate. First of all, as I explained, uh, we have just put in place some measures. And some of these measures only at the level of principle. Uh, we reserve to announce the exact calibration to give an answer to future developments. So uh, I think it's a little bit premature right now to ask us already what would be your second, third and fourth step. We are very much focused on having our next step correct and uh, to implement what we have said that we would do. Then uh, I hope that you give us at least credit that so far we have been measure, uh, we have been able to come up with uh, the necessary measures within our mandate. And I insist on that, within our mandate uh, we are not at, uh, with the wall against the wall. We still have room. Um, of course, you have room left um, on specific uh, specific tools. But um, if you look kind of to the rate guidance, for example, um, there was also um, a lot of rumors that um, the ECB could have um, be even bolder with the rate guidance, not only saying that the rates stick to the current level, at least at, to the end of this year, but because the market is already anticipating at least one year longer. So who is right here, the market, the ECB, and why, why are you not in sync? Well, you could also make a case between uh, the analysts in the banks uh, and those who operate in the treasury in the banks, which you also not seem to be exactly on the same page uh, as to their expectations. And uh, if you will read uh, our accounts, which will be published soon, you will also see that uh, we have had uh, what is quite normal in collegial decision-making, a discussion. Uh, some uh, were of the opinion uh, that uh, there was no need maybe to change our forward guidance. Some wanted to change it a little bit further, but don't forget that it is not one instrument alone that determines the ECB's policy stance, but it's a package. And in the end, uh, what has been announced uh, is satisfaction at unanimity with the package that it is addressing the increased uh, risks that we have been seeing evolving, the increased uncertainty, and uh, at least until we have a new assessment, uh, we are convinced that this is the right answer. If you talk about forward guidance, we also should talk about that the term of Maya Draghi's presidency is up in October. And so there's also the key question of how much forward guidance can you do, which also would mean that your uh, successor will actually uh, have a, a set policy uh, measures already in place. So not a lot of leeway to actually install its own policy. So I guess the forward guidance component will be a tricky one during the course or remainder of Maya Draghi. Presidency. Having talked about that, of course, there's a lot of chatter who could be the next Maya Draghi. And I think Weidman, interestingly, is back in the running because clearly it seems that the French want the head of the commission job. And so that would also mean that the French candidates are out of the running for the ECB presidency. So it will be interesting to see whether the unlikely candidate from the German side will perhaps still be the most likely one in the end. Back to you. 
So, Anetta, just on this um, horse trading that's now taking place, uh, there was a, a story put out yesterday suggesting that the, the French are now looking at the commission presidency rather than pursuing the ECB president role. I mean, are you hearing anything around that that, that would suggest that that is a fair estimation of which way events are now going? Yeah, actually, that's what I'm hearing as well, that Emmanuel Macron seems to favor the commission job because there's a thinking that it could be actually more powerful than the ECB job, given all the policy measures like ring-fencing Europe, industrial policy. So that would clearly sit with the commission and not with the ECB. And that, in turn, could mean that all the French candidates we are talking about, be it Benoit Curie, be it Willera Dugalo, um, for the, the, the ECB job are out of the running because clearly the French can't have both. Um, and also the German candidate Weber for the head of the commission is a very weak candidate. That's clearly the case. So in other words, if the French will get the commission job, it's clearly that the, the German side will not say, clearly you can have also the ECB job. Uh, so I guess Weidmann will be, um, again, a very likely candidate to succeed Mario Draghi. Um, Anetta, thank you very much. So that's fascinating, isn't it? So if, if we could end up with a northern uh, European running the ECB, but he would effectively be neutralised by a French candidate potentially having the commission job. This is, very interesting. This is Bonkers. I mean, I'm sure the Brexiteers are rubbing their hands with glee about this one. Obviously, we're not in the Eurozone anyway, the British. But but it, it's the best candidate. It doesn't matter if you're from, from Yugoslavia or whatever it is, the former Yugoslavia, wherever you were from. Surely it's the best candidate. What's it doesn't matter if you're from Germany or from... Because if you well, think, the best qualified person, no, the one who's got the most experience, one whose CV's best. Right, which is the typical way you view it. But what if you're going into a downturn, you put a hawk in that position, someone who typically Hawk's takes walk. a, a dim view of too much easing? Because I think if you look at what Mario Draghi was in that cycle for the economy, he was an ultra dove. You know, the discussion at this point is, can you find anyone who is more dovish than I, Mario Draghi? I hear what Draghi? you're saying, Karen. I think you're talking incredibly logically in, in, in a... Uh, rational world, but in the world of European interest rates, let, let's say that, as you quite right say, there's Hawk over here, and then there's Dove over here, and then you've got something else in between as well. Well, you can pretty much wipe out everything from neutral uh, to Hawk and take that away. It's a question of how neutral to Dovish you're going to be over this cycle, because Mr. Draghi, uh, with all the best will in the world, hasn't managed to raise interest rates to his entire tenure, despite everything they put at it. Uh, and you can say the same about Mr. Corroda as well over at the BOJ as well. They failed to reach their targets. Let me just take you on that point around the dove to, to neutral because is that going to be enough? Is neutral actually more like a hawk if you're in an ultra-easing type of environment where next phase we're going to have to be pushing the rules. Wow. We're going to have to be inventive potentially wow. around ECB policy. Right, so I... could a German, could a Northern European be inventive around policy like Mario inventive? Draghi has been? Inf I don't know. That's what it's going to take, Macroprudential, right? maybe. Is that inventive? That was inventive. That was made up to be inventive, wasn't it? Yes. I, I hear you, and I'm not disagreeing with you. All I'm saying is one word, and Jeff likes this. Maybe we'll put it in the headline. Japanification. Japanification. Uh, we'll never uh, ever forget, of course, um, Mr. Trichet, who raised <laughs> yes, interest rates did. even as yes, economic growth was slowing. Maybe we, we're we looking at a, a, a new ECB president who would do something like that. Anyhow, uh, stay tuned for Mario Draghi's speech, which will bring you... Uh, we will bring you live at 9 a.m. CET.
Stephen Moore, President Trump's expected nominee for a seat on the board of the Federal Reserve, says the central bank should immediately cut rates by 50 basis points. In an interview with The New York Times, the former Trump campaign advisor and fellow at the Conservative Heritage Foundation think tank said he was not a sycophant for the president or a monetary policy dove. Sounds quite dovish, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and quite positive you've, you've on the president. One, uh, look at the dot, dot, dot plots that came out last week. You haven't got one Fed member who thinks the economy is going to grow less than what, about 2.3% next year. And you've got a chap here mm. saying 50 basis points cut. That's, that, that's quite... Quite dramatic. Quite, quite dovish. I want to come to the Kiwi dollar, actually, because this is where we've seen the moves in the uh, past 24 hours. The Kiwi dollar tumbled to a two-week low after New Zealand's central bank unexpectedly announced that its next move would likely be a rate cut. The RBNZ held rates at a record low of 1.75%, but investors were surprised by suggesting a 25 basis point rate cut was on the cards now in May. The central bank blamed a weaker economic outlook and reduced momentum in domestic spending. But I just want to make the point here, I think this is quite dramatic for Forex markets. Investors are talking about being blindsided today, which is quite strong language. And you think last time investors were blindsided, Swiss National Bank perhaps. Yes. So yeah. that has a big impact for central banks. But I think now what we have is a, either a race to fall in line or a race to the bottom from some of these central banks on interest rates, because otherwise there are going to be currency implications if you're even staying neutral in this type of market and not forecasting some sort of turn in rates, then that's going to be very negative in terms of compressing your economy. And that's what the likes of New Zealand was facing, where Australia removed its tightening bias. New Zealand was trying to stay neutral, but the economy was facing more headwinds because of that stance. So now we've got to look across the board and say, what's going to happen across with other central banks? Will they also start putting in rate cuts to their expectations? And then what's the currency implication? Will the dollar actually remain higher now? Will it actually have a foothold if other central banks start to cut? Um, I think the expectation is the dollar is going to weaken from here and increasingly you see the investment community starting to move towards the emerging market trade, both equities and fixed income, as they think that is the opportunity on a weaker dollar. But just to step away from the actions of the specific central banks, because let's face it, it is a lie to argue that all of these central banks operate in their own limited national um, interest and based on their own nat uh, domestic national economies. Absolutely. The you know, we, we were talking earlier this morning about how we're going to chat about a couple of things. And we talked about chatting about oil and we talked mm -hmm. about chatting about the central banks. But cause and effect, the reality is, I think the thing that links all these stories together is the weakening Chinese data. And here we are this morning with this latest uh, number on industrial profits, the weakest since 2011. Preceding that, we saw manufacturing output slip to a 17-year low. Margin on industrial activity now is sub-5%. You've talked a lot about the auto car sales, which were off over 13% for the first quarter. All of, all of this begins to look as though it removes China from the table as the, um, uh, the, the, the new source of global demand for other economies. Look, let's carry on this conversation. I, I think, I think we've, we've got a, a chat waiting in the field. Uh, literally in the field. Um, we'll come in November. We'll come on with this conversation. Great points from Karen Jeff there. Uh, coming up on the show, UK lawmakers prepare to take control of Parliament just for a day uh, as the Prime Minister addresses backbench MPs from her own party. What happens? Goodness knows. And if you just can't get enough of Squawkbox, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. You can head to cnbc.com, iTunes, Spotify or Google Play to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our podcast listeners, stick around for more.
European Parliament has backed a law that could see tech firms held responsible for content posted without copyright permission. The reformed rules exclude memes and GIFs, but will mean platforms have to sign licensing agreements with publishers and artists and filter content before it's uploaded. Google has said the law will, quote, harm Europe's creative and digital industries. The measure will now go to member states for approval. The European Commission will require member states to share information on 5G cybersecurity risks and introduce measures to combat them, but has stopped short of banning Huawei. The measures are designed to counter concerns about technology companies being used for espionage, and individual countries will have the right to ban companies on national security grounds. Huawei said it welcomed the EU's, quote, objective and proportionate approach. Right, UK Prime Minister Theresa May will meet with Conservative lawmakers this evening ahead of a series of indicative votes on possible Brexit outcomes. The Prime Minister is going to address her backbench MPs, 1800 CET apparently, with uh, reports suggesting May will set a resignation date in a bid to convince MPs to back her deal. Meanwhile, Parliament will hold a series of votes on alternative Brexit proposals in the House of Commons with potential options ranging from no deal to revoking Article 50. But there is nothing, is there, Willem? Nothing that says the government has to take their lead from Parliament. And of course, I understand that some parliamentarians have asked for a second day stealing the agenda from the government, possibly on Monday as well, to hone in those choices. Good morning to you, sir. Yeah, good morning. Those choices currently standing at 16 different options uh, that will be debated on, then voted on this evening, starting from around two o'clock local time. We should expect the voting to start at around seven and we may get a result around 9 p.m. here in London. Those options include many you would expect, including a reversal of Brexit, a so-called revocation of Article 50. That's the treaty that governs the exit of a member state from the European Union. Then also ideas pushed for a long time by Labour, including permanent membership of a customs union, alignment on workers and environmental rights, as well as some other options that the government and the European Commission have over the previous few months said are just not workable at all. This is an unusual process. There is no clarity yet about how they will narrow those options from today down to a potential second day on Monday. But what is clear is that Theresa May still believes her own deal is a possibility right now. If you remember last time that came to a vote here in the House of Commons, she lost by 149. That means she needs 75 people to swing around to supporting her deal. As of right now, it looks like that number could be getting down to around 50. She may have managed to bring quite a couple of dozen over in order to support her deal. And over the last 24 hours, we've had some quite high profile members of her party who've been staunch critics of the deal, saying that now as they look at the reality facing them, they're they're facing a choice between her deal and no Brexit. They are now inclined to vote for it. So there's a lot of fluidity still here in Westminster. But this voting process this afternoon, very unusual. The speaker will be selecting the uh, ideas, essentially these options being put forward by members of the House of Commons overnight and we'll then see those debates start in a few hours' time. Willem, in terms of who will be the the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, if we get through this phase as well, do you think, obviously, general election people are talking about and the self-harm that the Conservatives can do if they do get to a general election and call one too early, of course, a whole set of hoops have to be jumped through before that as well. Is Mrs May in the final act of her five-act play now? Certainly she's faced 
a really absurd amount of pressure over the last two years, all focused on Brexit. Let's not forget, she chose to take on this task and this job. She must have been aware of what that would entail. But in the last few days, more and more lawmakers have said publicly and privately that they think there is a possibility she would be prepared to go if it meant her deal gets over the line. The challenge with that is, if she makes that kind of offer, she might make that this afternoon when she meets with bank benches, there's no guarantee it will get her deal through. And if her deal doesn't go through and she has set a date or a potential date for her departure, that leaves her with even less leverage in an already difficult situation. All right. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And, and I know how complicated it is because I'm trying to keep un in touch with myself and it's driving me bonkers trying to keep in touch with it. But the, the options still look the most complicated chart. Willem doing his absolute best there to make uh, it clear and, for us. And, and, and there still remains the issue. Uh, are um, the, the Commission, or is the Commission, willing to negotiate with anybody other than the Prime Minister of the country? Well, at this can point? I just say someone from the Parliament, uh, EP, rather than the Commission, Guy Verhofstadt, apparently on Twitter, he's... Yeah. I'm going to use a British word here, cock-a-hoop, that parliamentarians have seized the mantle from uh, a, a government that seems at war with itself. So he's quite happy at the moment. If Guy Verhofstadt's happy, well, let's see where it goes from there. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.